You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you do not have your Bibles with you, there's a red Bible, church Bible, in a seat near or around you. We're going to be looking at Acts 17, verses 16 through 34 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. If you're using one of those red Bibles, we're going to be on page 984. And then all the verses, as always, are on version as well. If you're using the version Bible app, you can go in there under more, find today's event under Redeeming Life Church, and all the scripture verses will be in there as well. This morning we're going to pick up Paul's journey as he arrives in Athens. Chapter 17, starting in the 16th verse, says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed, when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Aragopolis and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spend their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Aragopolis and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed." He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Aragopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Church, will you bow your heads with me one more time? as we pray for our word this morning. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that we have this opportunity today, Lord, to gather together to open your word and to hear from you this morning. What we know not, Lord, I pray you would teach us. 
What we see not, Lord, I pray that you would show us. Open our minds and ears to hear your voice this morning. And help us to leave here changed through the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak through me this morning. And that we would be receptive to what you have for us today. It's in your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Church, this might come as a surprise to you, but I hate waiting. <laughs> I, I'm sure I pass myself off as a very patient, very understanding individual, but I hate waiting. Whenever I have to wait, it always causes problems and, and gets me into trouble. I remember when Crystal was working at the clothing store in the mall, whenever I'd go to pick her up or take her to lunch or just see her, she'd be busy most of the time and I'd have to wait a few minutes. Folks, I can only wait in a ladies' clothing store for so many minutes. <laughs> so eventually, nine times out of ten, I'd find myself wandering across the hall into the used bookstore, which could only spell disaster for my wife and blessings for me. Uh, <laughs> and then if, if she took a really long time, well, then we were really in trouble because then I'd wander out of the bookstore and into the sporting goods store where I'd be looking at golf clubs. I hate waiting, but whenever I have to wait and get in trouble. Maybe you're the same way. You're sitting at the doctor's office, and you get impatient, and you start going through the drawers and pulling out the tongue depressors. I don't know. But it's hard. It's hard to wait. It always causes problems, and it always gets us into trouble. And that's exactly what we see here with Paul this morning. It caused problems and created a situation for Paul, too. Paul is waiting in Athens. He's waiting on Silas and Timothy to arrive. And while he's waiting, he started wandering around the town, and he became deeply distressed, Luke tells us, by all that he saw and witnessed there. This morning, we're going to look at the setting or the circumstances surrounding Paul while he was in Athens. Then we're going to read his sermon here that we just read this morning again. We're going to unpack the key points of the message that he preached. And finally, we're going to look at the outcome or, or the result that came from the gospel message that Paul preached. As we look at these three things this morning... I believe that we will clearly see that without God's help, the gospel does not go very far. Let's look back at our text this morning and observe the disheartening situation that our faithful missionary Paul has found himself in here in Athens. Let's look at these first few verses. Paul's in Athens, and it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed. When he saw the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this arrogant show-off trying to say? And others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching that you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners that were residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. All right. There's a ton here. There's a lot to unpack. Just to quickly bring us up to speed for those who maybe weren't with us or forgot where we left off, Last week, we saw Paul get run out of town in Berea. Remember the butt in Berea by the Jews from Thessalonica? Because they were upset that the word of God was being proclaimed in Berea. So the Jews from Thessalonica followed him there. So 
Timothy and Silas stayed behind, maybe to create a distraction, while Paul left and was escorted to Athens. Now, upon arriving in Athens, Paul sends word for Timothy and Silas to come and join him. He wants their help. And while Paul is waiting on Silas and Timothy to arrive in Athens, he goes out, wanders around the town, looking around, checking out the shops. Very quickly, he becomes distressed by the massive number of idols that exist in that town. Which kind of begs the question, how many idols were in this town? How many idols do you think were in this town? I don't know how many idols would seem like a lot to you. Five? Five idols is a lot. Ten? Maybe 50 or or even 100 idols. I I feel like 100 would be a lot. But what is a lot? Luke tells us that this town was, quote, full of idols. In fact, a man named Pausinius visited Athens about 50 years after Paul was there, and he stated that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. That's a lot of idols. The reason that he said this was because the population there was about 10,000 people. And according to historians, do you know how many idols were there? There were 30,000 statues of gods and goddesses. That, folks, is a lot of idols. The streets were lined with false deities and idols. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? There were false idols everywhere. Place yourself in Paul's sandals here this morning. Here he is. He's he's walking down the streets in this town. This place that is known for learning. This is a place known for learning and knowledge. It's famous for the architectural wonders of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. And everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, everywhere you go, there's a golden statue or silver idol or a bronze sculpture of a false god or a false goddess. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? You're there to proclaim the gospel, and you're all alone. Your two companions, your missionary companions, are not with you. You're waiting for your buddies to come and join you. As you wait, you look around, and everything you see is a symbol of the brokenness and the lostness in the world. Folks, it shouldn't be too hard to imagine If you look at the world around us today, it really isn't much different. I can just picture how depressing, how how discouraging, how frustrating this must have been for Paul. Many of us probably would have given up. Many of us would have gone back to our hotel room and ate our feelings from the snack bar. But not Paul. No, quite the opposite, right? In fact, once again, our gospel crusader rolls up his sleeves and goes after the lost. In order to seek and save the lost, Paul does the very same thing that he always does. He preaches the gospel. Verse 17 tells us Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Man, talk about consistent. Paul is consistent. Everywhere Paul goes, everywhere we've read about, he finds himself in the synagogue, and he preaches the gospel. That's his usual MO, right? If you've been tracking with us, every text we've read so far, every town that Paul has visited, he does the same thing. Step one, go to a new town. Step two, find the synagogue. And then step three, preach the gospel. 
Not only is Paul proclaiming the gospel to the Jews and those who worship God, but when he's not in the synagogue preaching the gospel, where is he? He's out in the marketplace. Paul goes out to the marketplace and proclaims the gospel to anyone and to everyone who's there. Talk about faithfulness. I'm, I'm afraid to ask my waitress how I can pray for her after, at lunch after church. And here Paul is walking up to strangers at the grocery store and sharing the gospel with them. Talk about beast mode. When you add up all the unbelievers and all the foreign gods in Athens, this man is outnumbered 40,000 to one. Does that slow him down? Paul's not concerned with odds. His primary focus, his main goal, is serving God and living his life as a drink offering poured out for him. Paul has dedicated himself to be a living sacrifice for Christ. And as a result, he faithfully preaches the gospel, even in difficult or intimidating situations. Which means, just as we've seen in previous towns, Paul is once again faced with opposition. As Paul faithfully preaches the gospel, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the town decided to start debating with him and ridiculing him. Now before we move on, let's talk about who these Epicureans and Stoics are. In my study time this week, I quickly discovered that the Epicureans are not the people who paint your nails and do your makeup. <laughs> Apparently those are estheticians, similar word but very different meaning. When I figured that piece out, this whole section of scripture actually made a lot more sense. It was a lot clearer to me. At first, I thought Paul was getting into a theological debate with the people working at the nail salon in the mall. But apparently, that's not what's happening here. Epicureans, Bible scholars will tell you, believed that there were many gods. They believed in many gods, but they also believed that these gods were removed or disconnected from human life. But as a result, these gods did not engage in any sort of providence or, or human intelligence. They didn't believe these gods concerned themselves very much with mankind. As a result, Epicureans were critical of popular religion and encouraged people to pursue happiness and contentment in life. Now, where there was this sense of maybe chaos or disorder in the belief of the Epicureans, the Stoics had a very different outlook on life. Stoics believed that there was a purpose and an order to life. They believed that the human race was one, proceeding from a single point of origin. Stoics sought to live in harmony with others and sought happiness through wisdom and recognition of reason behind the universe, which supplied life and moral purpose and made the world understandable. So just as a couple quick bullet points, Epicureans did not believe in providence, and the Stoics believe that all mankind came from a single port of origin. These two points are going to be important later on when we examine Paul's sermon together. But before we move on to Paul's sermon, I want you to pay special attention to the sarcastic insult these philosophers hurl at Paul in verse 18. In verse 18, Luke tells us that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, and some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say. In the CSB, they call Paul an ignorant show-off, but many translations use the word babbler here. In the HCSB, the Greek is translated pseudo-intellectual, and the NASB translate this phrase as scavenger of tidbits. <laughs> These guys aren't messing around. 
Regardless of which word or phrase your Bible translators utilized here, what you need to know is the word babbler, as most commonly used here, is literally translated as seed picker. Seed picker. Originally, it was used to describe birds picking up seeds and grain. And over the years, this phrase came to mean one who peddled others' ideas as original without understanding them. So, what these philosophers are accusing Paul of doing is stealing someone else's ideas or thoughts and passing them off as their own. Basically, they're saying, what is this third-rate journalist trying to tell us? This pseudo-intellectual, this scavenger of tidbits, this gutter sparrow, seed picker, ignorant babbler. What is he going on about? Talk about an encouraging and engaged audience, right? <laughs> Hopefully you aren't thinking those thoughts about me this morning. But that's what they were thinking about Paul. These guys have thrown the gauntlet down at Paul's feet, and he's about to pick it up and wreck them with it. The surprising part of all of this is despite their frustration and their annoyance with Paul, Luke tells us in verse 19 that these guys actually take Paul and brought him to the Areopagus so that he could continue in his teaching because it sounded strange and foreign to them. This whole situation is wild. Do you see what is happening here? Paul's in the marketplace. He's sharing the gospel. He's preaching about Jesus Christ. Half the people are making fun of him. They're calling him dirty names and accusing him of plagiarism. And the others start accusing Paul of preaching about foreign gods because they don't really understand who Jesus Christ is and they don't know what the resurrection actually was. And then, in the midst of all this chaos and confusion, the group decides, let's grab Paul, take him before the city council, and have him preach some more. This is crazy to me. Imagine, church, for just a minute, if Robbie were out sharing the gospel at Smith's one afternoon. I, I use Robbie as the example because if it was going to be any of us, it, it would be Robbie. So he's out at Smith's, he's at the grocery store, and he's sharing the gospel, and it creates so much commotion and so much uproar that a group of people then look at Robbie, they take him, they load him up into a car, and bring him out in the front of the mayor and the city council members. Then everyone looks at Robbie as a crowd of people fill in the room. The whole town is gathered around him, at which point Mayor Harris asks Robbie to please share with them this gospel message of Jesus Christ that he has been speaking about at the grocery store. How awesome would that be? The reason that this happened, the reason this is going on, and the reason this happened to Paul, the key to all of this is in verse 21. Remember verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians, all the foreigners that were residing there, spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing about something new. All they wanted was new stuff. All these guys ever wanted to talk about. The only thing the people of Athens were even concerned with were the things that they didn't know or the stuff they had never heard about before. Tell me something I don't know was their constant cry and charge to one another. So, they take Paul up to the Areopagus, and if you don't know what the Areopagus was, well, it was a rocky hill that sat about 370 feet high and overlooked the marketplace in Athens. It was on this hill where the philosophers of the city would gather together to discuss their ideas. This hill is also commonly referred to as Mars Hill, if you've ever read about Mars Hill. So picture the setting. Picture the setting for Paul's sermon here. There are thousands of statues and altars made of gold, silver, and bronze. 
all around him. He's surrounded by these fake Greek gods and statues everywhere, all of which are probably staring at him blankly. Not only that, but he's standing behind the most exclusive and uh, elite of philosophical review board in the world. He's standing in front of the most exclusive philosophical review board in the world. Just imagine what Paul must have been feeling in this moment. I'm nervous to stand before you guys this morning. A lot of you guys love me. A few of you are even related to me. Some of you aren't even paying attention, and a couple of you are just glad I finally learned how to breathe while I'm preaching. (laughs) Almost all of us in the room this morning are Christians, and I still get a little intimidated and a little sick to my stomach when I have to stand behind this sacred desk and proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I can only imagine the fear and the intimidation or the weightiness, maybe, that Paul must have been feeling standing on this hill as he prepared his heart and his mind to speak the truth, to share the gospel, and to call these men to repentance. So let's put ourselves in Paul's sandals once more as we hear his gospel message through the Oropagus and listen to the words that Paul uses to refute their false beliefs and misunderstandings surrounding who God truly is. Look at me, with me again at chapter 17, starting in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made this world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. So he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that we are the divine nature is like gold or, or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Paul found an altar to an unknown God. These people have so many idols, so many statues and false gods, they even have one dedicated to an unknown God. Just in case, just by chance, they might have happened to miss one, they've made a golden statue for that guy. So Paul sees the statue, and he uses it as the starting point to launch launch into an incredible sermon about the one God that they're not worshiping, who just happens to be the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the only real God who, 
as Paul points out, does not live in shrines made by man or served by human hands, because God doesn't need us, but rather we need him. Then Paul moves on to address some of the key points of their beliefs and ideas. In his sermon, Paul speaks to and ultimately refutes the core beliefs of both the Stoics and the Epicureans. Remember, Epicureans did not believe in providence, and the Stoics believed that all mankind came from a single point of origin. So in his sermon, Paul outlines the amazing sovereignty of God and his providence over mankind in verses 26 through 29, when he states that from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this, Paul says, so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out to find him. Though he's not far from each and every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And Paul says, since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul is making the case to these Greek philosophers that God has providentially ordained the times and places where they live for a purpose. God has positioned them there in Athens so that they would hear Paul proclaim the gospel and might seek God and live through him. For in him we live, we move, we have our being. Paul then goes on to show how even their own poets have stated that they are God's offspring. And how in light of that powerful fact, why in the world would they think that God's divine nature would be something made of gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art? And imagination. After all, if we are a creation of God, then God is not a thing that we can create with our own imagination, nor is he someone who resides in temples that we've built. God is bigger and better and more powerful, more awesome than any of us could ever imagine or even fathom. Sitting here today, <laughs> And hearing that God is the creator of the universe might not seem like earth-shattering news to you. But it shook the theology of these philosophers to its core. The Stoics were pantheists, and the Epicureans were practical atheists. So the statements that Paul is making here refuted their beliefs. Not only that, but Paul's statement in verse 25 drove this powerful truth home even further. Because it directly attacked the Epicureans' belief that God was absent and the Stoics believe that he was in everything. Catch this. As the giver of all life, God is active and present within creation. But he's not contained by his own creation. So at this point, we've seen what Paul was up against. We've examined the situation and the surroundings here in Athens. We've also heard Paul's sermon and played close attention the various ways that he's used powerful biblical truths to contradict and refute the false claims and the misguided beliefs that the people of Athens held concerning God. The only thing left to do at this point now is to look at what the outcome of Paul's sermon was here at Mars Hill. What happened? How many people got saved? What churches were planted in Athens? How was this community changed and lives transformed by the power of the gospel? Let's look again at our final two verses of our text today. And let's see what happens as Paul finishes his sermon. Starting in verse 32, we see that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So, Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here we have Paul preaching this powerful gospel message about the one true God, the creator of the universe, the God who does not dwell in temples or shrines, who does not need mankind to serve him in order to exist, but rather has served mankind by giving everyone who has ever lived the breath of life and all things within creation. Paul shares how God has sovereignly and purposely positioned each and every one of us not only where we live, but when we live in the scope of history. Paul shares how God is not a God that is formed by our imagination, but he's revealed himself to all mankind. And then Paul ends his sermon with a call to repentance and a charge to follow God, because the day is coming when God will judge the world in righteousness. As a result, thousands come to faith in Christ. The philosophers destroy all their idols and burn their false gods, and a gigantic 10,000-person megachurch is planted in Athens called Mars Hill Church. Whoa! Praise God! Not so much. Wouldn't it be awesome if that happened? Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, that's, a, that's an ending right there. I would love to tell you that that's how our story ends this morning. But sadly, we can see from Scripture that's not the case. In fact, I, I believe, and I would contend to you this morning, I don't even think Paul was able to conclude his sermon. I don't think Paul was done talking. I don't think Paul even finished his sermon because as soon as Paul started preaching about Jesus Christ and the judgment that was to come, Luke tells us in verse 32 that when they heard that, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. The people just cut him off. People immediately started to lose their minds and scoff at what Paul was telling them. Sure, there were some who said they wanted to hear more from Paul later, but did they? Did they really want to hear more from him? I wonder if they genuinely meant that or not. Was that a genuine statement? Or were they just saying what they thought Paul might want to hear? Hey, Paul, listen, that was great. Seriously, man, thank you so much for sharing. Don't forget to tip the valet on your way out, and please come again soon. We'd, we'd love to hear from you more about this next time you're in the neighborhood. Also, don't forget to grab a golden statue on your way out. We have plenty, so just take one. What was really going on here? Paul was faithful to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ. He stood up against some serious oppression and displayed incredible boldness in the face of a super intimidating situation. And then in the end, what does he have to show for it? More hatred? More ridicule? And more sarcasm? In the end, only a handful of people are actually saved and start following Christ. In the conclusion of our story, the only converts we actually read about are Dionysus, Damaris, and a handful of others with them. I doubt that was the outcome that Paul had been hoping for. I doubt that was the outcome that he had been praying and asking God for. I doubt this was the great awakening or the revival that Paul had been hoping for in Athens. And yet, that's exactly what did happen. Why? 
After all that work, why? Well, because that's exactly what God intended to happen. Paul was faithful to share the gospel, but the outcome of his faithfulness was solely dependent upon God. Church, here's the big takeaway. Here's the main takeaway that I believe Luke is wanting, Theophilus, to see from Paul's experience here in Athens. And the main point that I believe God wants to remind us of from his word this morning. In the end, we must remember that without God, the gospel doesn't go. Without God, the gospel does not go. It's God that moves the gospel forward. Our task is to be faithful to proclaim it, regardless of the outcome we see here on earth. So what? What do we do with all this? What does this mean for us today? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, for starters, if you're sitting here today and you're listening to this message online, and you are not a Christian, now's the time to surrender your life over to Christ and to follow him. We all heard a sermon from Paul this morning that made it abundantly clear who God is and how God is Lord over all creation. So why not make him Lord of your life? He's going to judge us one day. We see that today. So if you're not following Christ, let's have a conversation about what it means to follow him and give your life over to him. For the rest of us, as Christians, we can learn something from Paul's example. As Christians, we must remain faithful to proclaim the gospel, regardless of the outcome. Church, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the city we live in today is not much different from the Athens we read about this morning. We live in the 21st century Athens. Look around you. Think about the world that we live in today. Is our community not saturated with idols? Are we not surrounded by false gods? Folks, if you don't know someone in our society who worships a false god, you must never leave your house. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, God has strategically placed us where we live for a purpose. God has sovereignly determined the times and the places where we live for a reason. It's the same reason that God sent Paul to Athens. Church, we live in a mission field. We live in a mission field for a reason, and that's to proclaim the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, period. God has positioned each one of us here for a purpose, and praise God that we are not alone. Praise God we're not alone like Paul was. Praise God that we have brothers and sisters to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to help us endure. Living in a mission field is hard. I get that. I know that. Sharing the gospel can be intimidating at times. But I believe the encouragement that God wants to see us to see from his word today is that the outcome of the gospel proclamation is not dependent on us. So in light of that, we must be faithful, just like Paul was, to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Then, here's the big part, we must be faithful to trust God for the rest. Without God, the gospel does not go very far. But with God, the gospel has the power to transform lives and save souls. Was a church planted in Athens? like we saw happen in the other towns Paul visited? No, not at all. 
But did God's word return void? Absolutely not. Did Paul's servant start a revival in Athens? No. But some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Here in the conclusion of Acts 17, we might not see the results that Paul had been praying for or that we as Christians would hope for or expect to happen. But we, what we do see is the outcome that God had intended to happen. Paul was faithful to proclaim the gospel no matter what. Without God, the gospel doesn't go very far. But with him, the gospel has the power to conquer death and bring sinners to new life in Christ. All we have to do is share it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the faithfulness of Paul. I thank you for his faithful obedience to proclaim the gospel, Lord, in intimidating situations, in difficult times, and in hard places. Lord, over the past few weeks, we've seen Paul get stoned, get threatened to be stoned, get followed, run, escape. Difficult things that we could never imagine enduring on our own. But above all that, Lord, we've seen that through you, the gospel is mighty and powerful to save. Lord, you say in your word that it will never return void. And we believe that this morning. Lord, I pray that as Christians, living today in a 21st century place, not very different than Athens, Lord, that we too would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Lord, that we too would be faithful to trust you. Paul trusted you for the rest. And that's what we want to do this morning. Help us, Lord. Empower us with your Holy Spirit to have boldness where we work, where we live, and the places where we hang out to share the gospel, to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ so that we might see lives transformed and sinners rescued through a saving relationship with you. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for all that you've done, all that you are currently doing, and all that you continue to do through this faith family here at Redeeming Life and Bountiful. Above all, Lord, I thank you that we are not alone you are with us and we have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and press us forward until your mighty and glorious return. We worship you Lord and we praise you. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information visit redeeminglifeutah.org